Welcome to Behavioral Grooves, the podcast that explores story, science, and secrets from the world's brightest thought leaders for the curious at heart. I'm Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. We investigate the aspects of behavioral science that will improve your well-being, your relationships, and your organization by helping you find your groove. Okay, Tim. Do you remember that quote from Groucho Marx, the one that said, Please accept my resignation from the club. I don't want to belong to any club that will accept me as a member. I do. I was a, I'm a big Groucho Marx fan, and I, I do remember that. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So would you accept a membership from a club that would ex- have you if it was a secret club? Well, I'm not sure that that would really make a difference. <laughs> would it? I don't, I don't know. know, but wouldn't it be cool <laughs> to be a member of a secret society, one that's highly exclusive and only... A select few get in? Well, of course it would. You know, it's got the psychological pull of being a secret club. And that that's that's pretty compelling. All yeah. right, agreed. And, and our guest today talks about that secret society pull. Yeah, that's right. This is Michael F. Shine's second appearance on Behavioral Grooves. And he talks about his adventure in applying one of the lessons from his first book, The Hype Handbook, in forming a secret club. It is a really interesting subject, and I kind of wish I could be part of that that club. I'd love to know what they talk about in, in that club. That'd be pretty cool to, to know. Yeah, it is. Yeah, and I'd love to tell you about it, but you know, since you're not a member, I, I, I can't. <laughs> Damn it, I knew you were a member. I knew. No. Oh. <laughs> no, Mike, you know, you know, Mike made it pretty clear. He's not going to invite his buddies. Yeah, not so. going to invite either of us. I know. We're just not worthy of the secret society club that, that he has. All right. All right. So, listeners, sit back, grab a glass of your favorite secret society brew, and enter our very secretive discussion with Michael F. Schein. Michael F. Schein, welcome back to Behavioral Grooves. Thank you. I am very happy to be here. It's great to have you here. Okay, so... Man, it's been a while since we've been in touch. What's what's going on? A lot. Um, I I I am not sure how far into the cataclysmic world global pandemic we were, but I think it was on the early half of that. Yeah, last time we talked. Yeah, and um, knock on wood, we seem to be emerging, which is evidenced by the fact that I have a regular, good old fashioned cold right now. (laughs) It's not COVID. It is not COVID. It's just a cold the way I used to get colds um, and it's awful, but it's it's normal. But but I think the thing with like colds these days or anything like that is like all of a sudden it's like, oh, I got COVID. I got to go get tested. It's like we have this fear that is overhanging every time we get sick. I now yeah. I get a headache and I go, oh, no, what's going on? Um, which probably is not a totally bad thing to have, but no. um, it kind of no. makes us a little bit more cautious and a little bit more concerned about these minor illnesses that we're not passing them along hopefully as much but well, well it's funny about that and then we'll i'm sure we don't want to talk about epidemiology the whole time but um <laughs> I, I used to get a lot of colds and i realized i think i had a lot of bad habits like chewing my nails and you know things like that and i think just being careful and 
wearing oh. masks. I didn't get a lot of colds. And now I got this I, it's cold and like four other people I know have regular colds. And I think some of the bad habits are coming back. You know, right. I'm not really wearing a mask a lot. I'm just going oh. out and about and not thinking about where I'm sitting or standing or inside or outside. So we're not washing our hands nearly as much as we did that 20 ABC song and doing all that stuff that we did. Yeah. All right. All right. Okay. Well, we don't want to talk about colds no, no. and germs and, and other things. Exactly. So what, what else have you been up to? <laughs> but so, yeah, I mean, the reason I was on the show the first time is because I had just put out the hype handbook. It had, it had just been published with McGraw Hill and um, I was promoting it, you know, so I was going around to a bunch of shows and the good news is the book got attention, you know, um, in fact, just recently, because I got a decent advance for the book, I got my first check royalty check oh, deposited oh. into my account. So oh. for people who don't know how that works, you have to earn out your advance. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. Know? There's no free money in this. It was a $20 check, which is nothing, but it was very exciting because it meant that now I'm going to start getting royalty checks. It's and like when I got my lovely. first I got my first uh, check from Spotify for a dollar I think it was a dollar two, yeah. actually. Yeah, that was yeah. like okay, it's working to a very small degree. But that exactly. oh, congratulations. Okay, so that was that was cool. So anyway, so what happened was it changed my entire professional life and business. So, um, for all intents and purposes, Microfame Media, the company that I own, was a marketing agency. Mm -hmm. Even though we did things our own way, and we right. can talk about what that is if it's relevant. People didn't know what hype is, right? You know this this concept that I call hype except as a negative thing. So when people came to us, I would be the marketing agency. And, and that meant, even though we did things in our, our benevolently mischievous way, we ran social media campaigns. We ran essentially PR campaigns. We, all this. Yeah. I mean, that had a lot of benefits. It, 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 it you know, the problem is um, there's this weird psychology that happens and, and I would be the same way if I were a client, I think. But when you say, when you hire a company, especially at a premium, and you say, go handle my marketing, there's this subconscious thing that kicks in where you sort of disassociate yourself from the process. You, you, you know, you sort of wave a magic wand, even if you don't mean to. And I, it used to make for a lot of difficult conversations with clients because, you know, we would, for example, position someone in a certain contrarian way, book a bunch of podcast interviews for them, and they would show up, even though they hired us to be contrarian, they would show up their old outside the box thinking synergy win-win solution, corporate self, right? <laughs> and, and so um, we would always have to have these conversations and it, and it was really challenging and we would yeah. get good results, but it meant that I had to have a very big team for, you know, and, and, um, and a, lot of, a lot of hard conversations. So what happened with the book was people started to understand this concept of hype. Not that I invented the word, but I redefined it yeah. a little bit in yeah. the business world anyway, as activities that generated emotion and attention mm -hmm. in this sort of mass psychology oriented way that can be done for good. Yeah. It's a really you positive know? thing. Not, not just this negative thing that culturally we tend to associate with it. Yeah, exactly. Right. So people started to call me up and, and say, Hey, we need some of this hype thing <laughs> instead of marketing. So I reinvented good. the company to be where I, I, I walk people through the, the teams. I, I, it's like an intensive program where we 
dig into each height principle and sort of bake it into their DNA. And then we build experiments based on that height principle. And we come up with it. We give the customized tools. We dissect them. We iterate them. But the client goes out into the world and puts one foot in front of the other to do the experiment, mm. usually a small experiment because you don't want to fall on your face publicly. The craziest thing happened, though. The results are better. We've had a viral Instagram, a viral TikTok star. We had a conference created on our principles that was cool. very, very successful wow. that had big, you know, uh, Chris Doe was there, the guy who did the future. So um, it's just funny how when people have a little bit of skin in the game, they take the concepts and just run with them and you get a better result. So that's been a really cool thing. So the business has changed a lot and I, 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 I'm loving it. I love what we do now. There's a part of that that's like the, it's an endowment effect, this idea that because it's mine, the Ikea effect, as we talk about, yeah. right? I'm, it's I'm having to make this. Yeah, you've given me the directions. You've pointed me in the right way. But because I've had to put labor into it, I value that that much more. And I 100%. think, as you said, the results come as a result of having that hands-on component within there. So that's really cool. I would encourage anyone who has a business where you're not selling a physical product to think of ways where you can use that endowment effect. And that doesn't mean, I mean, everything is like a river. On one bank is do it yourself, a video course. And on the other bank is you say jump and, and we say how high. But I would encourage people to challenge that idea of under promise, over deliver. We, we all say that that's what you're supposed to do. But in the most extreme examples, I would have clients because we used to over deliver anything they said we would do. They would give people at my company assignments. They would tell them to write memos and give them due dates completely out of scope. And instead of feeling when I pushed back, it wasn't like, oh, yeah, I'm pushing a little bit. You've been doing a lot for me. It's like, how dare you not do this thing that's become the new norm? Wow. You know, we get very because wow. we get you think about yeah. how horrible the pandemic felt in the beginning. And then we kind of got used to it. It was yeah. like low grade misery, but you accommodate everything. So do. I would challenge people to to just accept that idea. You should always give the best possible service within what you're doing and and become indispensable. But just running and jumping for clients usually has the opposite result. And it doesn't usually help the client because sometimes they give you assignments that are completely um, useless for what you're trying to get to, yeah. which is human nature. And I'm and I'm laughing because I'm like going, oh, this is my life. There you go. That's my life. <laughs> it's it's most, most people's yeah. lives in the, in the kind of work that we all do. OK, but, so yeah. you got a You've got a new project, Mike. You've got something new that you're working on that we want to hear about. We want to share with our listeners. So. And this is what I reached out to you about, and you thought it was cool, so you graciously. Yes, we did. On. Okay, yes. But we think it's secret, so that's kind of the cool Shh. thing. Yeah. So the show's over. We we can't talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> that's just speed, uh, you know, speed show. Yeah. So um, one thing to keep in mind is that I'm always doing experiments, right? I mean, that's what I lead my clients to do. I mean, there are mass psychology principles, you know, behavioral principles that you guys discuss and the principles I discuss. But ultimately, you don't know what form those are going to work in. So I'm always doing experiments and most of them don't work. And a lot of times they're experiments to promote our business. Right. And then we use the results to help clients. 
So I had a chapter in the book called Create Your Own Secret Society, Build Your Own Secret Society. And I, I, I used the term in a very tongue-in-cheek way. It, it was really a function of what I would call a, a sort of nuclear networking that hype artists do. But I didn't really mean a real secret society. But after the book came out, I got interested. You know, I started thinking, why did I choose that term? Right. And why are so many people fascinated by secret societies? Why did the Da Vinci Code... Well, really, it's ilk, you know, the ones that came after it about the Freemasons. Why did they sell millions upon millions of books? So I started to research it. And what I found was so fascinating was we tend to think that the secrets that these secret societies like the Freemasons and all of these things, the Illuminati, are the important thing. It turns out it's the secrecy that's the important thing. So so we actually right. know what the secrets of the Freemasons are because the Inquisition found the Freemasons very threatening, you know, in the 1700s when they could still torture people. And they did. So they tortured the secrets out of people and documented them. And, and they're, they're available. If you're a Freemason, you promise to, you wear an apron, you kneel down on a checkerboard floor, you, you promise in very ritualized language to cut your tongue out and slice your throat if you tell the secret. And the secret is something like, be good to your fellow man. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. what does that tell you? The point of the secrecy is the secrecy. You know, we all join these mastermind groups and these networking groups. And we all say that we're delivering value and we do it because we like to do it. But really, it, it's part of our jobs. We do it because we think we should. We might enjoy it more than looking at spreadsheets, but it's not something we would do with our free time, you know. But people used to join these groups and spend all their free time at them. And a lot of business got done. You know, the reason people found them threatening was because a Freemason will do anything for a Freemason. And it's about the secrecy. It's about the ritual. It's about the exalted language. So what I did as an experiment was um, I have a mailing list called uh, the Hype Book Club, which has a lot of people on it. And because it has a lot of people on it, some of the people not the majority, very much the minority, are people maybe you would have heard of, you know, people who are, are famous or at least micro famous, you know, <laughs> like, like, for example, there, there's a, uh, a big um, producer of properties that you've heard of on the list, right? So, you know, you wouldn't know his name, but you would know what he, what he created. So I said, well, how, what if I like created a well-designed email that, that was really ornate and had really exalted language and, you know, I called it the ludic circle because Latin is always very good for these sorts of things. And, yeah. and it just means the, the play circle or the magic circle. And I sort of invited a very small number of these people to join a new ludic circle, a secret society. And um, I didn't expect anything to come of it. I never do until it does. But I got a really good reaction. I mean, people were really enticed. So I started playing with it. And I really stuck to the idea. The idea is... I am not just inviting people because they're my friends. I still hold networking dinners with really successful people. These people are not in the secret society. Many people have asked me to be in it. I don't do it unless it's a good fit for the group. 
even really successful, awesome people that I've helped and they've helped. And like us, like we haven't been invited to your secret society. Yeah. You know, I'm feeling <laughs> right. kind of left out. I'm feeling like, hey, what, what did we do wrong? Come on. And yeah. you may one day and you may not. My former partner in Access to Anyone, a podcast that I hosted, he still runs it, hasn't been invited. And I, I, I must make 20 introductions to him a year. You yeah. know, he's a close personal friend, right? So we could beg, but that still wouldn't get us invited. But Tim, you might be invited and I don't know it. And, and I, because and it's I secret, you can't tell me. Yeah, You'll never so, know. Or, or vice versa. Who knows? So on one of the other podcasts, a guy who interviewed me, this guy, O'Brien McMahon, I think, if it wasn't him, forgive me. But he told me about a group I had never heard of, and they're called The Seven at the University of Virginia. Have wow. you ever heard of this? No. It's like a fraternal organization like a fraternity, but not really. There's seven people at any given time in this group. Wow. And no one knows who's in it. They invite you in there there by putting this letter in a statue of Thomas Jefferson, the founder. And the only time people find out about it is when you die. They deliver a flower arrangement in the shape of a seven and ring a bell at your funeral. <sighs> That's that is exotic. Like, that's what I'm talking about. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. who doesn't want to be in that, right? So are you are you working on... Because a, I don't want to dilute it. I don't want to make it where, oh, but yeah, but you know, Kurt and Tim are so awesome. They're so successful. They've helped me out so much. I should let them in. And then my partner, I should let him in. And what about my accountant? You know, he saved me hundreds <laughs> of thousands of dollars. He really has. I mean, he. I wouldn't be in business without him. He should probably be in yeah. it. And, and before long, you've got a networking group, yeah. right? I'm experimenting with something different. And mm -hmm. it turns out business gets done. That's not the point. The point is for it to be to prompt these sorts of questions, to create an air of mystery okay. and to have fun as part of the the event. And then if business gets done, business gets done. So um, it's been cool. I don't even call it a project. It's just a thing I'm playing with right now. So in your book, you talked about having, you know, this is one of the things that you could do. You could start your own secret society. Do you now having done this, are you doubling down on that? Do you think that really many like organizations could be doing this to to have not just business benefit, but all these other factors that you're talking about? I always think it's really important to think about underlying forces versus tactics, right? Okay. So, you know, there's a book called uh, Launch. I'm trying to think of who the uh, guy who wrote it was. Yeah, Jeff Walker. It's about a certain way of doing digital marketing. And on the face of it, it's a great book. It was written at this point, probably 10, 15 years ago. And it gives you a recipe for setting up sales funnels, um, massaging people with content, and then ultimately getting them to buy with you. And Jeff Walker went from nothing to a millionaire. And I know people who have followed the process early on and did the same. But if you tried it now and just followed the recipe, you're not going it, to, it's going to do nothing for you. That stuff hmm. has become so well known that tick, oh. ticking down counter clock that you always see that creates false scarcity, a certain type of email sequence that goes out. A better way to read that book, I believe, would be to say, what is it that Jeff Walker understood about how people make buying decisions? that caused him to inherently build that system. He didn't find it in a recipe. So where people go wrong is they, um, you know, they uh, see that XYZ person in their industry created a sub stack 
and used Tumblr to promote the Substack newsletter and got a diehard following through Tumblr for the Substack and then converted the Substack into payments. So they do the exact same thing and they're boggled that it doesn't work. And what you want to say to yourself is, what were they doing on Tumblr? What were they tapping into? Right. Why Substack? And why, why, you know, what was it about that newsletter and creating that pay gate that worked? So I don't know that I would just follow it and say, create a secret society with Latin in the headline, you know, <laughs> but I think looking at what psychological dynamics are at play, which people have done for years. I mean, look at a Mormon temple, right? Like if you, when they build a Mormon temple, there's a small period of time before they consecrate it where anyone can come in. And after that, only, you know, members of the church can come in and people will travel from 10 states around to go into this building that I can assure you, I'm not sure, but I'm 99.9% .9 sure nothing happens to change the physical structure of the temple once it's consecrated. It probably That's looks right. the same afterwards. Yeah. I was all excited because, you know, uh, groove in Latin is sulcus sinus, if I pronounce that correctly. And oh, so sinus. I thought it's we like could a groove in your nose. Yeah, grooving <laughs> yeah. in your nose. There you go. I think we could have a whole, you know, groove uh, subculture Club. secret society. There we go. Anyway. With a Latin I'm not saying name. I'm not saying don't do it. I mean, I think there's <laughs> value. I, I, I think it's just a function of understanding why you do anything. Yeah, I think that's a big piece across any to any type of piece. And, and and the example that you brought up, the idea of like focusing in on the substack and and the you know method of getting out there is that tactical approach is not one that is going to lead to success in most instances. It is really understanding the strategy behind it and what is going to be driving that strategy for you as an organization. And I, I yeah. think you bring that point really clear. Um, and so that that's very true. Well, so, and I would that, say that sometimes you'll find that the tactic is the right tactic, but you, yeah. you, just like a lot of people have used the launch system to make a lot of money, but you have to ask yourself, why is it a good fit for my business? How do I make it our own and that sort of thing? It's context. I mean, context is so much a part of it. I mean, I go back to the Alice Cooper stunt in Piccadilly Square. Right. You know, I mean, what what a great thing to do in that context. It wouldn't have it, it, it would be it would be silly to do again. To doing it today, so what? You know, or, or if you were Elton John, or if you were a different, you know, it, a different performer, it, yeah, yeah, it with had a different... to fit with Alice Cooper's persona as well as you know the time and everything else that made that work. And those are the things that you need to take into consideration. It, it's such a great point, right? If you look at the context for people who don't know this stunt, you know, Alec, Alice Cooper, they they had a billboard of him naked breakdown in Piccadilly Square to outrage parents. And we tend to think that these things are constant, right? But there was a generation gap at that point. I mean, that yeah. was not every generation. There have been generations where kids wanted to be like their parents, right? That wasn't a unique thing. People always want to pull away a little, but this was a generation gap. Parents and kids were, were in two different universes. Whereas today, I read a story, I've mentioned this before, but I was a big fan of kind of like like punk music and stuff. And so mm -hmm. this band, the Dickies, who was a punk band from the seventies played at some conference and they're like old men at this point. And they got up and they did their punk rock thing where they were shouting obnoxious, probably deeply offensive on, you know, put in sexism, homophobia, racism, whatever other thing. But the idea in the punk days was we didn't really mean that stuff. We're just trying to be outrageous for the sake of being outrageous. Right. So they did that on stage. 
And a young person, which they are not, uh, held up a sign talking about how demeaning and offensive they were to women. And the guy freaked out and started yelling at her. And who won that argument? The kids didn't become Dickies fans. No. You know, my 12-year-old daughter, I, I had on my wall when I was 12 years old, and this is almost embarrassing, but a picture of a woman in a bikini on a sports car and an Iron Maiden poster with a guy holding a gun, you know? And my daughter has like prison reform posters and, you know, women's <laughs> yeah. rights posters. I mean, that's yeah. who they are. So to, to apply that generation gap thing to them doesn't work. Right? Not at all. Context is everything. Yeah. yeah. So what's next? What's next for Michael F. Shine? Gosh, could use a vacation at some point. Oh, right? come on. Not you're, not a, no. you're, you're not a relaxing. You're not going to take a vacation. I, I'm pretty good at relaxing, honestly. Uh, you would be surprised, but I don't do it too much. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, I have a couple of things that, that I'm really focused on. At some point, I'm going to have to write my next book. And that's kind of a secret, secret, Ooh. no pun intended. That's a hidden or secondary reason that I'm messing around with this secret society stuff. Because maybe if it goes where I want it to go, I'll sort of doc do a more journalistic approach for the next book where I sort of talk about the process without revealing the secrets. Mm. I'm not sure yet. I'm not sure that'll be the book, okay. but it could be. But I guess the thing I'm most deeply involved in and interested right now is, um, you know, that cheesy phrase, the riches are in the niches. Mm -hmm. I always really struggled with getting there. I mean, we, we worked for a long time with consultants and, you know, but, but um, we've always sort of taken on who, who could use us. But with this new program, um, I, I figured out who my favorite kind of client is and who we work best with. So um, we had two or three clients, the first one being a company called Popup that were venture funded tech startups. And all three of the parts of that equation are important. So a lot of times startups, even funded startups, I've found are funded by the owners, a, a success that the owner had in another business which can be a problem because a lot of times their model isn't as strong as they think it is, but they have the capital to yeah. keep it bolstered. They didn't have to convince a board or convince uh, investors. A venture funded startup is great because they have to have a really strong business model. Mm. They tend to be doers and risk takers and they have a board that requires results, right? And they have a team. So, and they're, they're the companies, the ones that are great, the ones that aren't, didn't fool somebody are really great. They're the ones that are changing the world, right? I mean, they, in the best of those companies, they're doing really new things. So, you know, I worked with this company Pop-Up and um, we basically worked together for six months by design. And instead of creating a brand book, which is what startups usually do, they, they based totally on the imagination of the agency, they come up with logos and mm -hmm. copywriting standards Colors, and then they never use yeah. them because it's based on, on very little. What we did was we used the hype strategies and we conducted very quick, rapid experiments to see what resonated with their audience. And the ones that won, we documented. And now they're using these standards. You know, their designers are using it. Their marketing oh. people are using it the way they talk about it in interviews. So, that was the company that launched this big um, conference. They completely came up with their contrarian point of view. So we've done two or three of those. And I, I just found out that they're my favorite companies to work with because they're the ones really putting those big ideas out there and they work so hard and they make things happen. So, so I've just, I, I've started focusing almost entirely on working with those companies. That's become kind of my thing lately. That's interesting. Yeah. 
because <laughs> I'd love to be able to do that. As uh, my the the motto that the Lantern Group, my my other business has, is you know uh, doing cool work with cool clients. And yeah. I was talking to Tim the other day. I'm going, <laughs> yeah, I got I got a couple of clients that hey, we're not doing cool work with them, and hey, they're not cool clients, and yet uh, you know they're 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 paying the bills, and so I, I end up we continue to work with them. And, and, and but everyone nice has that to be, problem to an extent. Yeah, right? I mean, it would be nice yeah. to get to a point where you can really just curate the clients that you have, particularly in, in you know, if you're getting to, if you want to grow to be a multinational, you know, be moment kind of huge organization, you probably, that's not going to do it. But, you know, you can change the world and still have a, a limited impact on from the business side of of some of those those factors and be able to choose. And I think that that for me is something that I'm I'm striving for. So yeah, I think it's the gold standard. And I, I don't think that there's any business owner or entrepreneur who's being completely honest who hasn't at some point in their career worked with less than ideal clients <laughs> for them. At the same time though, if you can get closer and closer to crafting what you offer to appeal to those people and those people. And you have to get comfortable with turning people away. But I think, I don't know, I think ultimately more money gets made and, and um, that's where I'm focused, but uh, it's hard. It, it's always hard. Yeah. It is. It is hard saying no when you, yeah. you know, you're kind of not sure where the next you know, paycheck is coming from, you kind of go, oh, is this going to be the last one? Because that's always, you know, it's always down the road, always down the road. So I guess one trick that I've used to fool myself is to, and I'm not perfect at this, but is to structure my business in a way that I can't serve certain types of clients, right? So Mm -hmm. like, right now, I'm just not doing all of that handling social media, writing copy, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm good at a lot of that, especially the copywriting. That's how I started. But the reason I don't do it is is many fold. But one of them is that the real small solopreneur executive coach type clients who are beautiful people and do great work. If you have that kind of business, they will seek you out. They will try to get a deal and they will treat you like an employee of the company. Right. And that's not, and that's no, no harm, no foul, you know, but that's what they will do. So if you have a model where, Hey, we do this thing, we deliver more value this way, which we do. And you just won't bend. You can't work with the people you don't want to work. It's with. It's almost like a, a, a kill switch. It's almost like, like saying, here's a, here's a, here's a boundary. Here's a guardrail. And we're just not going to go beyond that. And, beyond that it's it's just not going to be a it's not going to be a business opportunity did you ever see that this is the last thing i'll say about this but it's, it, it just occurred to me did you ever see that movie with M- uh, michael keaton about the mcdonald's guy ray Kroc? he wasn't the founder but he turned it into mm-hmm. mcdonald's basically at a certain point he walks into a mcdonald's who a franchisee and they were serving fried chicken and he said to the people, what are you serving fried chicken? I mean, you're not using our system. And they said, but people around here like fried chicken. I mean, what do you mean? We're not going to serve fried chicken. Nine out of 10 people would have just said, okay, and continued to serve fried chicken because money was being made. And it was a real headache to create a structure to not allow for fried chicken to be sold or whatever. And what he, he cared so much about that system that this guy he created almost a, he created a system where if they didn't do what he said, 
you know, I, I think it was some kind of real estate deal. They didn't really, yeah. you know, he owned the real estate, right. they owned the franchise. So I almost think you need to burn your boats in that way. You need to create a structure where you can't do it the other way. Maybe it's because you don't have the team to handle it, whatever it is, right? So I, I, I think it's hard to do, but if you can, that's how really good businesses get built, I think. Mike, it's great to see you today. It's great to reconnect and uh, it's great to have you as a, a guest again on Behavioral Grooves. Thanks for joining us. This is always one of my favorites. I, I, I love coming on here. So uh, maybe one day you'll get a special golden ticket. Oh, Keep an eye out. We'll wait for that day. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. First, you got to give me your address. <laughs> Welcome to our grooving session where Tim and I groove on what we learned from our discussion with Michael. Have a free-flowing conversation, although it might be a bit muted because it's kind of secret. And whatever else comes into our very secret brains. Yeah, yeah. We almost have to whisper on this whole episode, I think, because it's secret. Whispering. We can't let any of the secrets out. Whispering. <laughs> <laughs> this isn't an ASM. Is that that? What what is that stuff? Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That, That's yeah, what I was. Uh, yeah. The, yeah. No, we don't. We don't have sexy female voices either. So it kind of doesn't work. We don't have sexy voices in general. There you go. But, okay, but secret society. I, I love that that Michael actually took something that he's kind of invested in with, which is the hype book. I mean, and he's a hypester. He really is. <laughs> in the best. You know? term you know he yes. talks about hype as not being a bad thing and it's not if no. you think about it in the way that he, he portrays it so yeah right and, and i love that about him and that he's embraced that and this idea of forming this secret society as just this tiny little nugget that comes in the first book i think it's fantastic and i like that he's doing it i like he's that he's given it a try and, and i like that the success that he's had with it he talks a, a little bit about that i mean obviously he kept a bunch of the stuff secret but you know he talked about the the success and kind of this element of being part of something and some of the the unintended types of connections and ability to to have those conversations that he talked about i thought were really kind of cool I did want to talk with you, though, uh, a bit, because I don't think we really got into it uh, a lot, is the psychology behind oh, secret societies. Definitely. Why they're alluring. What do they do from a psychological perspective? So one of the things uh, I think that I, we could groove on is just the scarcity principle, you know, Cialdini's principle of scarcity. And I think yep. that is a apt kind of component when we think about secret societies. I think that's maybe the central component of the secret society is that it's not talked about. I, I've just heard a, a story this morning about watches made in Switzerland that cost $100,000. And they, they came out with the, this particular watchmaker came out with the watch during the middle of the pandemic. And they were really concerned that it might be a bad time to launch this $100,000 watch. But of course, Guess what? Because of all the crypto billionaires and uh, people who have made money in the market in the in the past few years, uh, it became an instant success. They have a, a waiting list. They had a waiting list that was twelve years long. Oh my gosh! Because they make such a small number of these hundred thousand dollar scarcity. Watches. Yeah, it is all about scarcity. We it's adored by the human condition, and and I think Michael 
has has created something here that when you say it's a secret society, instantly scarcity is is the most prominent thing, and it makes it alluring, makes it interesting. And you're only invited. You know, you can't just join it. You have to be invited right. to join it. There's a bunch yep. of those elements. That idea of exclusivity, the uniqueness mm-hmm. of the uh, group that you're going to be a part of. Yeah, but what about what about uh, self identity? I mean, you you have done a lot of work on self identities and self schemas. Is is there an aspect of self identity that uh, that mixes? plays into this idea of the secret society? I think so. I mean, again, I haven't researched this part in particular, but think about it. If you have an, you know, your identity is made up of a number of self schemas and a kind of an overarching piece of, of who you are and the self schemas inform that larger picture. And if one of your schemas is I'm a member of this exclusive club that only allows you know a, a select type of person in, depending upon what that secret society is, it has to play into your perception of your self-identity. And for some people, uh, it could make up a, a large portion of that, depending upon how important that secret society is. If you go back and you think about uh, what we, when we think about secret societies and we think about the bone and what is the bone and skull club and and different things within some of the you know ivy league colleges and how exclusive and to be a part of that you are now in this brotherhood you know the masons you look at that those are pretty life-altering type secret societies and so that being part of one of those has to have a impact on who you are, the the perception of who you are. Even if you can't put that out into the society as a whole, it's still right. there and probably it, influences yeah. you know your actions and uh decision making. Well and isn't it interesting? I, I, I found that part of the conversation when we when we turn to the secret societies within these very old Ivy League institutions and uh, these colleges in the United States that there's already a tremendous amount of exclusivity just getting in. Yes. Right. Just actually just being a Harvard undergrad is, you know, I, I think th- it's like, you know, a one in 10,000 chance of even of those people who apply. Of those so apply. That, yeah. Uh, uh, so that if, if you applied, you know, there's probably a good chance that you're, you're pretty sharp. But to be one of this very exclusive group that gets in, and then, then once you're in, it's like, well, I'm just another Harvard undergrad. I want to go for the secret society. I want to figure out how to get in to even be even more exclusive within the exclusive group. So our brains naturally go to it. And I, I really like the idea that, that, that self-identities play to it. I also think that there is, and this also kind of plays along with the, the Ivy League school thing, this illusion of superiority, mm. right? The which, which we know since we've lived in Minnesota so long, the Lake Wobegon effect, you know, Garrison Keillor's. <laughs> yeah. Where all the kids are above, above average, right? Yeah. All the kids are above average, right? And But there is this overestimation that we all have our, of, of our particularly, uh, the way that we look at ourselves in the mirror is that, well, you know, we're pretty desirable relative to other people. And, and, you know? and being so, accepted or being asked to join a secret society just reinforces that. It's completely reinforcing it 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 helps it helps boy up this idea that i really am 
I really am a, a little bit better than everybody else because because they want me to be a part of the secret society, right? And I think so, there's a the you know there's also this effort justification, although effort may not be the right term, but you know in the effort justification that IKEA effect, anything that I've had to work for, different pieces of this, and oh. I think. You know, you're not necessarily working for, but those that get invited, you're trying to, what What do they need? What am I doing to make sure that I get accepted into this kind of piece? It could could be there. That's a weaker connection, granted, but. It's it's a little esoteric, but it, it actually kind of reminds me of some work that Ron Kivitz did on when he was looking at how, when, when do people indulge? Mm. And they are more willing to indulge after they put forth a lot of effort. And so. Being a part of a secret society, if it takes a lot of effort to get in, isn't the ultimate indulgence <laughs> that, that you can't talk about, though. Well, and, and part I think of part of the underlying mythology around these is also that secret societies have a power component to them. This yeah. idea that somehow oh, yeah. you are connected to movers and shakers. And one of the things that Michael talked about is the ability to as you're, is he's identified this within the group that he's formed is that those connections that you make and the ability to have real conversations is something that's there. And I think that probably is there, there's some truth to that, this idea, not, not the power part, but the, the freedom because it is secret and it is exclusive. And we know that this is the group that it is that there is a element of openness that comes with that. And that openness can uh, create long lasting uh, connections with other people and variety of different pieces. And if those people happen to be in places of power, then you have an in to those yeah. places of power that you may not normally have. But if we're members of this secret society, even though maybe we're in different chapters, but I now have a access point into that that is probably stronger than other access points could be. So are we on our way to creating the Groove Society, the Sulcus Sinus, as, uh, yeah, as we so discovered? Yeah, so introducing the very exclusive Groove Society by invite <laughs> only. But for a limited time, but for a limited time, uh, <laughs> listeners, if you are one of the first five to post to Twitter using the hashtag Groove Society and write, I'm a Groover. Yes, I am. I'm a Groover. How about you? You might get an invite into the secret society if you're one of the first 10 to do that. See, I'm making it secret and I'm giving an opportunity, but they have to work at it and they have to put it up. Isn't that great? I mean, should we do that? My, see, my first thought is we got to work on your rhyme scheme. With the, <laughs> I'm a Groover. Yes, I am. I'm a Groover. How about you? Uh, that's my first thought. So we can okay, improve so my the rhyme rhyming. Scheme. That's part of being in the in the secret group society oh, is that so we work make, on on the rhyming uh, things, and obviously, I haven't been invited in yet, so um, I need I need that word. Sulcus sinus. Sulcus yeah. sinus. It, what? There you go. What about that? So the the last piece I just want to talk a little bit about here, Tim, is you know. So granted, we we're not. Well, we might have a secret society. You know, and you'll know if you get invited. But if you don't, you know. But then you don't know. You don't know. But we may or may not. But this idea that businesses using this concept, right? This idea, a little bit more than just the scarcity, a little bit more than just this exclusivity, but can you have some sort of 
group that has uh, a limited membership. You know, and again, if you think about uh, frequent flyer reward programs and you get up to the platinum or you get up to some of those others, and how do you differentiate those and how do you create some of this desire to belong, to be part of that. I think it's an interesting concept that businesses yeah. can utilize in, a, in hopefully an ethical and, and positive way. Rory Sutherland has always been a big proponent of of tiering, you know, having different tiers of status within within loyalty programs. That uh, I, I remember talking to him once about the idea of having making sure that the boss sits in first class when you get on an airplane mm. so that there's this sense of there is a privilege there is there are certain benefits that go along with with being you know in that group of leadership you know that you get to actually sit in first class when you travel across the pond rather than having to you know sit back with the swill and <laughs> you know sweat but, so but does that go against some of the egalitarian components totally. of, of that? I think it does. So, I, I think it does. I, th I think that there's there's real challenges in our world today, uh, not to sound too um, you know politically correct, but uh, it certainly raises questions about how do we want to treat other people? You know, how do we want to how do we want to be treated? You know, but the thing is, it works. Exclusivity self-identity issues, scarcity, we are automatically drawn to those things. And I guess if you can set those up in a manner that isn't biased about, uh, you know, right. the type of people that get in, uh, but that it offers some of those rewards, uh, some of the perceived psychological rewards of that, that could be very cool. So, well, there's maybe there's the perception of it too. I, I, uh, I've seen some uh, television ads in the United States for for an insurance company, or excuse me, it's a it's a, a mobile wireless company, and they ha have a celebrity, a well known celebrity, a sports star, or you know, actor, someone that's that's famous and recognizable, saying, "Hey, you know, I'm really glad that I'm getting this deal, and uh, I'm glad you got this deal for me." Excuse me, it is insurance, and and so <laughs> I'm going back and forth and playing different ads in my head, but it's it is insurance, and and the the guy who's who's the insurance guy says. Uh, this isn't just you. Actually, this is available to everybody. He's like, no, no, no. I know that you got you cut me this this sweet deal because I'm me, and and the insurance guys. No, actually, everybody is available. It's available to everybody. But so, I think they're doing a very clever job of Im uh, implying that there's some exclusivity because this is only available, you know, the actor or the, the Aaron Rodgers of the world. There you go. Yeah, yes. so to speak. Right. Yeah. That that there is this sense of exclusivity but in reality they're offering this to everyone by doing so i think that they indicate you as an average consumer can have something that this celebrity has you can and that in and of itself is scarce you're part of the secret society along with that with that celebrity that gets these uh, benefits that the insurance company is offering hmm. I, I think I think we could wrap up on that. You note. think so? Well, with that, everybody, please try to get out and join our secret society by by uh, posting to Twitter, uh, whatever it is that I said before, even though it didn't rhyme. And uh, <laughs> hashtag grooves society. Hashtag yeah. groove society. There you go. And please don't keep behavioral grooves a secret. Please share 
uh, this program with your friends, with your family, with yes. your colleagues, we find that the openness of behavioral grooves is one of its best qualities. And the more people that we can get to listen in and to learn and hopefully to take something uh, from what we we are doing here and apply it to their their life or work to make it better, that's really what we're hoping for. And and by you know publicizing it and not keeping it secret is it pretty fantastic. So Groovers, take these messages from Mike Shine. Think about scarcity. Think about ex- exclusivity. Think about the self-identity issues that you can apply in your own life. And hopefully this week, you might be able to use them to help you go out and find your groove. <laughs> <laughs>